Lambs has done so many things. It's hard to hard to introduce them. Back in the nineties, before anyone was thinking about these things, he came up with ideas about max weight uh, uh, approaches for optimization that now have uh, become completely mainstream and are used all over the place. Um, he's done work on Wi-Fi, on coding, on multicast, on on caching. Uh, such a such a long list. That I, I I couldn't begin to do it justice. Um, so today, I, I, it's good to give an overview of some, some a, a few different things that you, you've been working on recently. So, yeah, just thank you very much. Sure. Thank you very much, Doug, for uh, the kind introduction. I'm uh, very glad to be here and uh, have the opportunity to give this talk. Um, so, the title of the talk is uh, Effective Information Delivery through opportunistic replication in wireless networks and uh, has within scope uh, some um, research activities uh, which, um, um, that we are involved with. Uh, it will be uh, joint work with various people they are listed in the bottom. And the, the unifying theme is uh, caching and how uh, somehow facilitates new approach is in networking. Um, it's motivated by a number of uh, recent developments over the last decades in uh, networking and wireless networks in particular. Uh, the first development is the proliferation of storage at all different stages of the network starting excuse me from uh, the servers in the beginning and then in uh, the switches and even the mobile terminals. Then uh, there is uh, a paradigm shift in uh, network uh, traffic that it's more and more content uh, oriented today as opposed to point-to-point uh, -point, uh, type of traffic where the transport, the transport is either origin or source initiated, whether it is unicast or multicast. In uh, content oriented traffic, uh, the attribute of the traffic that is important both for identifying the traffic and uh, obtaining it is the content rather than uh, where the traffic originates and that's that's important on um, how to think different ways in uh, designing networks then uh, there have been a number of uh, developments over the last decades like uh, cooperative communications network coding and uh, information mixing in general, um, either at the, starting from the physical layer with uh, the various uh, multi-user uh, reception schemes with interference, cancellation, uh, relaying at the physical layer, etc., and going all the way up to the network layer with uh, network coding that uh, is based on combining uh, packets of information. So, in all, different, in all these different schemes, uh, the, in one way or another, we realize that information mixing helps us to design the network more efficiently. And uh, this is uh, feasible to some extent because the information is available uh, at every different stage that needs to be. And this is again an eff effect of uh, uh, the storage that is available. And uh, so all this um, somehow motivates new approach in networking. And um, 
some of them will uh, review in uh, this talk. Actually, the talk will have two parts. The first part is more like uh, related on uh, information mixing and uh, cooperation at the access and network layer. So, uh, we'll present some uh, results on uh, network coding for information distribution and then uh, uh, the, we'll st some study on the broadcast erasure channel and in its information theoretic capacity and how this can be achieved in uh, certain cases by using this type of approaches. And in the second part, uh, we'll focus more on uh, the higher layers and we'll see how data replication and uh, cooperative caching has uh, an effect on uh, network capacity among other schemes. Uh, among, uh, yeah, and uh, this will be by uh, studying some uh, scaling laws in flat networks when we have caching. So in general, in the nature of the talk will be reviewing various results. Um, so if you need uh, a more deep consideration in a certain part of it, you can of course ask at any time or we can um, discuss after the talk if you wish. So um, taking a closer look on uh, the developments in cooperative communications and network coding, if we'd like to summarize in a few words the new principles that became available by, by these developments, we can say that uh, uh, from cooperative communications, we conclude that uh, every single bit or even signal that uh, a node I may hear, either because it is intended to him or because it just happens to be in uh, uh, the range uh, where this information is transmitted, uh, might be uh, useful in the, uh, in, uh, the future given the appropriate scheme, so it is worth uh, keeping track of it. And uh, another uh, lesson learned is that uh, in network coding, for instance, that mixing of information at uh, the network layer, with whichever way we do that, either with linear coding, non-linear, etc., and uh, by doing that, uh, essentially, we spread uh, the information in uh, a broad range of nodes. So this uh, availability of all um, different kinds of information in a node, not only the information that uh, needs to be relayed through the node or that is destined to the node, uh, can be uh, exploited in the future by an appropriate algorithm to facilitate uh, more effective information delivery. So, if we'd like to classify uh, the information that is present in the node based on uh, how the information uh, occurs there, we can distinguish uh, information that is uh, uh, information that is present at node I because it is just generated at node I or because node I is the final destination of the information, or because node I um, <coughs> serves as a relay of the information towards the destination, or because node I just happened to overhear this information because uh, it is within uh, range of that information if it is wirelessly transmitted. Now, uh, irrespectively of uh, how 
a piece of information happens to be present in a node, given the appropriate scheme, we can exploit this. Um, this is an example, for instance, how we can exploit uh, effectively the information that is generated in the node. It is a, a common example that illustrates um, the power of uh, network coding in uh, broadcast wireless. If nodes A and B needed to exchange uh, a piece of information each that is destined to the other, in uh, a more traditional way, the way to do it is that uh, in sequence, each one of A and B uploads to the relay the piece of information that is destined to the other node, and then in two more future steps, the relay uh, delivers to the final destination the corresponding piece of information, or alternatively, uh, after each one of uh, uh, the source nodes uploads to the relay its own piece of information, the relay uh, with uh, a single transmission uh, may deliver the XOR combination of uh, the two pieces of information to both nodes simultaneously. And uh, just because of the fact that each one of the nodes has the information that was generated in the nodes, they recover the information that is destined to them in um, a shorter time. And of course, this can be generalized in uh, scenarios where we have opportunistic listening as uh, what is depicted here. Sorry, the, oops. In this picture, the different nodes exchange information among themselves based on the relay that can listen and be listened by all the other nodes. But in addition to that, uh, its uh, node transmission may be opportunistically listened by some of the other terminals, depending on their location and their channel conditions. So uh, when uh, nodes uh, 1 and 5 need to transmit a piece of information to final destinations 6 and 3 respectively, uh, we have a situation not different than uh, what we described earlier. That is, uh, in uh, one transmission uh, each, node 1 and node 5 upload their uh, information to the relay. And then just because the overhearing pattern happens to, happens to be convenient in this case, the relay can uh, deliver uh, the information to the final nodes with um, a single transmission of uh, the XOR of the information. So there is uh, a lot of varieties and the question is uh, how far uh, we can go uh, by exploiting these schemes. And uh, this will be the results I will present now. And I should mention that these are results that uh, have been obtained uh, uh, in the context of research that we performed in two uh, European projects that uh, one uh, ended in 2010 and the other is uh, ending. Uh, they were both focused on uh, uh, cooperative communications and network coding in particular. And uh, these results were more like the theoretical part of it. In the context of the projects, we uh, developed um, a testbed implementation also to demonstrate the applicability of some of these schemes. So. I'll, uh, 
present first uh, the, uh, the optimal cooperative packet combining that is uh, a method of how to do systematically the uh, actions I presented earlier such that we obtain the maximum capacity out of the system. So the situation is, uh, as I uh, described earlier, is that uh, the nodes upload the information that needs to be delivered to the destination uh, first to the relay node. But during uh, this process, this information happens to be heard by some of uh, the other uh, terminal nodes. So uh, the question is, given this, what will be uh, the best way for the relay to decide how to combine the packets to obtain uh, maximum capacity out of the system. So, uh, in this case, the relay is faced with uh, the following situation in every slot. Uh, a number of packets will be present to the relay with uh, specific designated final destinations. And each one of the packets uh, is already um, residing in some of uh, the other nodes besides its uh, actual destination. So the relay may distinguish the group of packets uh, that is present in uh, different classes based on uh, the um, footprint of final destination and the group of other nodes that heard the packet. So the question is, uh, given this organization, how the relay should uh, decide which uh, packets to combine uh, such that um, the throughput of the system is maximized. And uh, we focus uh, in that work initially on combination of pairs of packets also for, uh, for simplicity. Uh, of course, uh, we, can, uh, we can see that if we allow arbitrary number of operations and have more flexibility, we can uh, do better. But assuming that uh, uh, we want uh, controllers that they are just allowed to combine pairs of packets in a way that is illustrated here. So um, it turns out that uh, this problem fits in um, a category of... Uh, uh, constrained uh, scheduling type of problems and uh, the best that we can do in terms of throughput that is in terms of maximizing the region of uh, sustainable rates between all different combination of packets is uh, to apply a, a max weight type of policy to this uh, virtual queues where uh, the weight is uh, based on uh, the length of the queues and uh, the quality of the channels to different users. So uh, this is uh, somehow, um, the, it's interesting, let's say, to identify the, the similarity with uh, this type of scheduling systems. And uh, it's a good indication that uh, by, by doing, uh, let's say, a thoughtful combination of packets, we can achieve a significant capacity. And uh, after this, they somehow uh, our appetite opened to characterize the best we can do after all possible um, 
actions that we can perform in the stored information. And that naturally led us to an information theoretic view of the system since information theory is the ultimate tool for characterizing um, the characterizing, let's say, the capacity of uh, any type of system like that and led us to the consideration I will present now. And this um, uh, is um, the characterization of uh, the information theoretic capacity of the broadcast erasure channel with two and ten users. So let me start. So the results I presented, the results I will present now are um, included in these papers. And uh, let me first describe what I mean with broadcast erasure channel. It's um, a category of broadcast uh, channels that uh, essentially capture the situation I described earlier. And so let's start with uh, the broadcast channel in information theory, that is what is depicted here. It's uh, a transmitter with a number of receivers uh, and it is characterized by uh, the conditional distribution of uh, the receivers receive a certain word of, uh, of the receiver alphabet conditional on what is transmitted in the transmitter. So that is uh, the general definition of uh, a memoryless broadcast uh, channel and uh, it is um, among, uh, not among, actually it is the first uh, multi-user information theory channel that uh, has been studied uh, in the early 70s uh, with some success at the, point, uh, at the moment, but with uh, more questions left uh, open than answered at the time. So uh, it's important to uh, distinguish all the different types of uh, traffic flows that we may have in that channel, that is, the effect of the transmission may be the broadcast reception that uh, I just described, but uh, all the different types of information that flow through the channel, they are not the same. Uh, we can distinguish uh, first unicast flows in the broadcast channel, that is uh, information flows destined for one receiver, or different multicast flows Actually, uh, in the general case, we may have one multicast flow for each one of, uh, for, for every possible group of receivers. Uh, here we see what is happening in the two uh, receiver broadcast channel. And in that case, the capacity region of the channel is the set of achievable rate vectors, where the vector has uh, one component for each one of the information flows. Now, we focus on a particular case of broadcast channels, the broadcast erasure channel with feedback. Uh, erasure channel means that uh, the receiver alphabet is very specific. It, it uh, coincides with the transmitter alphabet, including an additional symbol, the erasure symbol. And uh, the outcome of each transmission will be uh, either uh, a reception in a receiver of the transmitted symbol or the reception of uh, the erasure symbol. 
And uh, this uh, conditional uh, probability distribution that characterizes the channel uh, is uh, characterized essentially by the set of uh, these reception probabilities we have here. So essentially by the probabilities of erasure. Now, in addition, we assume that there is feedback, which means that uh, after its transmission, the transmitter becomes aware of uh, the outcome of it for each one of the receivers. And uh, this feedback might be used by the encoder for subsequent transmissions. So let's take a look on uh, the broadcast, uh, on the history of the broadcast channel. As I mentioned already, is uh, the first multi-user channel that uh, has been studied in information theory. And there, uh, uh, there were the, the original partial characterization of its capacity by Coverell, Gamal, and others in the 70s. And then uh, uh, the activity on that uh, stopped for a while. Uh, first, uh, it was obvious that uh, uh, these results would be far from any uh, from any scheme of practical interest at the time. And anyway, the, in the 70s, the communication was mostly point-to-point -point anyway. And the information theory community put most of its efforts in um, the point-to-point -point channel. So after uh, the capacity of the point-to-point -point channel uh, practically achieved, let's say, in the early 2000s with uh, the LDPC codes. There have been a regenerated interest for multi-user channels of uh, this type. And uh, there has been uh, quite a bit of recent work. Uh, also, it's important to note that uh, there is related, in, uh, related recent work from other communities, like the index coding work by um, the computer science theory community, which is essentially encoding schemes very much of the nature we are talking about. Um, so, it's good to have a view, a more general view of uh, where this uh, activity is uh, placed. Also, um, uh, it's uh, good to, uh, to, to review some uh, results, some general results of the broadcast channel at the time and how they are affected. In uh, characterizing the capacity of these channels, it is important to identify two subcategories of broadcast channels, the physically degraded broadcast channels and the stochastically degraded broadcast channels, which, has, uh, which are uh, as they are defined above. The definition is for the two receiver channel, but it generalizes. So a physically degraded broadcast channel is a broadcast channel where uh, the sequence of random variables x, y1, and y2 forms a Markov chain. And uh, a stochastically degraded broadcast channel is uh, one for which uh, there is uh, another broadcast channel that is, uh, uh, that is essentially physically degraded and has uh, a, a conditional uh, distribution for the channel, the, the marginals of which coincide with the one we have in hand. 
So the stochastically degraded broadcast channel is a larger category, let's say, of broadcast channels compared to the physically degraded ones. And uh, at the moment, it's uh, difficult to identify a physical uh, intuition, let's say, of what is the meaning of these conditions. Now, uh, there have been results that uh, in physical de physically degraded broadcast channels, the feedback does not increase capacity. Uh, while uh, it wasn't known uh, whether in stochastically degraded uh, channels this is true or not. Uh, interestingly enough, and as a side effect of um, the study of the broadcast arrays of channels that I will present, uh, it turns out that in stochastically degraded channels, the feedback does increase capacity, as uh, we'll see in the capacity characterization. Um, and uh, the, as I mentioned, the, the broadcast erasure channel happens to be stochastically degraded, but not physically degraded. So it is a kind of channel for which this uh, distinction uh, can be made. So let me describe briefly the capacity and the capacity achieving algorithm for the two receiver broadcast erasure channel. Uh, here we see a characterization of uh, the capacity region of that channel. Uh, actually, this is a, a characterization of the capacity region for uh, the erasure channel with two unicast uh, streams without a multicast stream. And, uh, the characterization is based on some, uh, uh, some bounding arguments. So we consider some auxiliary broadcast channels that bound uh, the capacity of the original one. Uh, in, one uh, in one auxiliary channel, we assume that uh, the receiver two channel is as in the original broadcast um, system we're interested on, while an erasure to receiver one occurs uh, only when in the original broadcast channel we have erasures in both receivers. So clearly this uh, auxiliary channel is better than, uh, behaves better than the original one in a stochastically dominated uh, way and its capacity um, will be larger than the original one. Also, its capacity can be easily characterized because uh, that uh, bounding channel has to be, uh, happens to be uh, physically degraded. So the existence of feedback won't change its, its capacity. So uh, the capacity of um, that auxiliary channel is uh, the triangle we have here with uh, the dotted line. And uh, with a similar argument, we get uh, another auxiliary system by exchanging the roles of receivers one and two with a capacity region that is uh, the other triangle. So clearly the capacity of our uh, channel is the intersection of the two, so it's somewhere here. Also, uh, it is known from the initial results on broadcast channels that the capacity of the broadcast channel without feedback is the triangle with uh, the green edge here. So the one with feedback that we are, in we are interested on will be 
will have a region with a boundary somewhere in this triangle. Now, it turned out that um, the capacity of uh, this channel uh, coincides actually with the upper bound that we have here. And it's interesting to see how we can achieve that. Actually, the proof is by construction, that is by specifying an encoding policy that uh, achieves that particular uh, capacity region. So let's uh, take a look of how the encoder would uh, work. Um, we start with uh, a number of packets destined for each one of the receivers. And uh, in the first phase, we start transmitting packets destined to receiver one. And uh, we, each packet we transmitted uh, as many times as it is needed until it is received by at least one of the receivers. So we start transmitting the first packet. If it is received by receiver one, that's fine, that is its destination. Uh, this packet leaves the system. If it is received by receiver two, again, we are done with this packet and we move to the following one, but we, we still keep it in the system because uh, uh, we need eventually to deliver it to its final destination. So after the end of phase one, we'll be left in the transmitter with a bunch of packets that are destined to receiver one but they are only received by receiver two. In phase two, we do the same with uh, the packets that are destined to receiver two. So after the end of phase two, we'll have uh, another group of packets which are uh, destined to receiver two, but uh, have only been received by receiver one. So after the, the end of phase two, we enter phase three. And uh, what we do in phase three, we start transmitting random linear combinations of all these packets that are left in uh, the transmitter. And we keep doing that until both receivers received uh, enough linear combinations such that uh, each one can recover its own packets. Uh, when this happens, uh, phase three ends as well. Now, it turns out if we analyze the performance of this algorithm, uh, that uh, the capacity that achieves is the outer bound boundary that I mentioned. Also, uh, we can accommodate multicast traffic in each scheme as well uh, by uh, just by adding the multicast packets as a third group of packets in phase three. So if we have multicast traffic in addition, we just uh, add in the linear combination all the packets of the multicast traffic, and uh, the third phase ends when each one of the receiver receives all the multicast packets as well as the packets that are destined to the receiver. So, um, and uh, it can be shown that even with multicast traffic, again, uh, we achieve uh, the, uh, the upper bound of the capacity region for the multicast traffic as well. So, it turns out that with this uh, simple scheme, we can achieve, ca yes? How vital is the feedback to achieving capacity? Say you didn't have the feedback. In this scheme, the feedback, is vital, um, 
But say, that, say and what I'm wondering is if you increase the length of phase one so that you start to see average behavior and the length of phase two is so you're seeing average behavior. Oh, you mean you to, to, you increase, uh, to increase the, the length of phase one yeah, without so feedback? You, you sacrifice delay, you make delay longer. <coughs> would, 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 you, would things concentrate? Would you, do you think you still have the same capacity even without feedback, ignoring delay? Well, uh, we know from the capacity region that without feedback we'll, we'll have uh, less capacity anyway. Even in this stochastically degraded case? Uh, yeah, even the stochastically degraded case. Uh, so, Intuitively, you, you may think something like that, but we, we know that the capacity will, will be smaller anyway from the, the bounds. But nevertheless, that was, uh, um, it was, uh, let's say, a good indication of uh, how useful uh, network coding type of approaches can be for achieving the capacity in uh, systems like that, since what we do in phase three, it has a network coding flavor, essentially. So that uh, raised our appetite to study the system with many receivers as well, because this uh, scheme that we have here, this encoder, it's not generalizable. So, uh, next we consider a system with uh, several receivers and uh, before I describe that, I just want to make, um, uh, to divert a little bit and describe a different system to point out the similarity. And this is uh, a basic model of opportunistic scheduling in a downlink uh, time varying channel which is essentially the same scheme that I described before, but with channel sensing instead of feedback. That is, what we have here is uh, we have a base station transmitting traffic to a bunch of uh, mobiles, and uh, the channel is, uh, has a, fine, a binary fading behavior. That is, at each slot is either available or non-available for uh, each one of uh, the receivers. Now, in case we don't know the channel, the availability or not of the channel will be perceived as an erasure or reception. If uh, we know the channel, if there is a CSI, let's say, uh, we can consider uh, scheduling schemes that uh, schedule transmissions in advance based on this uh, channel state information. And there is uh, a large uh, number of uh, algorithms of this flavor, and this is what we call opportunistic scheduling, let's say, in wireless. Uh, and uh, essentially, the, the model that I present here with the binary fading is the broadcast erasure channel, but uh, uh, with knowledge of um, the erasures in advance. Now it turns out that uh, the capacity of uh, this system, uh, first it's certainly more, uh, more simple to characterize, and uh, is achieved by the maximum connected queue scheduling policy that uh, designates for transmission at each slot uh, 
the queue for the user that first has a channel available and second has the largest backlog of packets waiting. And that is a result that uh, uh, happened to have um, uh, several years ago. So it's uh, interesting to see how the non-availability of channel information will change things both in terms of the capacity as well as uh, on the difficulty on how to achieve it. And uh, this relates to the broadcast erasure channel with N nodes that I will present here, which is essentially what we saw already, but with uh, N nodes, N receivers instead of one. So uh, in this case, again, this is uh, a picture that outlines the channel again. Um, so it's if we would like to give a snapshot of uh, the results I will present is first uh, some uh, capacity characterizations for uh, the many node, uh, the many receiver system for certain portions of the capacity region. As you will see, we don't have a full characterization of the capacity region, but only some uh, compartments, let's say, of the capacity region being characterized. A an encoding policy to achieve it and finally, a full characterization for the case with uh, three receivers. So, um, I think I will describe the policy very schematically here. Um, we will not give um, all the details as they are described here. Uh, just uh, want to keep in mind that uh, as the encoder operates, what essentially does is that, uh, again, uh, transmits linear combinations of uh, the packets that are residing in the transmitter in a staged way, in the same uh, way we had phases with the two receivers. And uh, here the feedback is used to somehow inform the, the transmitter of the amount of the new information that is available at each receiver. Let me uh, describe the scheme by an example and then we'll see how it fits in the um, bigger picture. So this is an example that shows the operation of the encoder in the case of a three receiver system. So the transmitter has uh, three groups of packets initially, K1 packets for receiver one, K2 packets for receiver two, and K3 packets for receiver three. So uh, in the first phase, and for each one of the receivers, uh, the transmitter uh, starts transmitting the packets in the same mode we described for the two receiver channel. That is, each packet is transmitted until the first time that will be received by at least one of the receivers. And uh, depending on the outcome of the transmission, the packet is classified accordingly. So for each packet, uh, that is destined to receiver one, either the packet will be uh, delivered to the destination if it happens that the first time that will be received by any receiver, the intended destination will be part of it, in which case the packet will leave the system, uh, or the packet will be heard only by one of the other receivers, but not the destination. Here is uh, uh, the packet is heard only by receiver two and or only by receiver three. 
or it will be received by both of the other receivers but not the destination. So after the end of uh, phase one, we will be left with uh, a number of packets destined to receiver one and each packet will belong to one of these three categories. And the same for uh, the other three groups of packets. After we are done with receiver three, we move to the next uh, stage of the processing. And uh, what we do here is uh, we start transmitting linear combinations of this subgroup of packets and uh, we do so until uh, each one of the transmitted of the transmitted linear combination is received by one receiver to which it offers some uh, new um, some new dimension let's say on the space of packets that this receiver can derive and uh, we keep doing that for all the packets of the second stage and uh, after that we move in the third stage where we start transmitting linear combinations uh, of all packets all packets that uh, will be left will be of that category now and we start transmitting linear combinations of those packets and we keep doing so until uh, each one of the receivers recovers its own packets uh, now uh, it turns out that this scheme is sufficient to achieve the capacity of the channel in certain cases and more specifically uh, in the cases that are outlined here, that is either for uh, symmetric channels, where by a symmetric channel we mean uh, one where the erasure probability depends only on the cardinality of the receivers and it is uh, permutation independent, let's say, on the nodes, or when the channels to the different users are uh, maybe asymmetric but independent among themselves or if it happens that um, uh, the erasure probability satisfy this condition uh, that we call one-sided fair rates condition that is uh, if we order uh, the erasure probabilities uh, they satisfy with uh, the rates to the corresponding uh, receivers a monotonicity property of this type. Now it turns out that uh, for, uh, the, for uh, erasure channels of any one of these three categories, the previous scheme achieves capacity. Uh, and uh, the reason as we observed that it doesn't achieve capacity for all cases is uh, somehow because uh, if uh, we don't if if none of this condition holds in order to achieve capacity we need to mix uh, channels from different stages as they're identified here in the transmission that is uh, after the first stage let's say when we are here uh, it is not adequate if we start uh, uh, if we start transmitting linear combinations of each one of uh, the middle stage uh, virtual queues only 
but uh, we may need uh, to start combining packets of virtual queues of different stages. Now, uh, this makes the scheme um, actually quite complicated and uh, we managed to identify encoder uh, we managed to identify an encoder that does that and uh, achieves the capacity in the general case for a channel with three receivers, uh, what we have here. Now, uh, that particular uh, encoder is not generalizable to arbitrary receivers, but uh, somehow it's an indication of uh, what is missing to do so and is um, a kind of uh, an open uh, question to close the capacity question for these systems. So uh, we would like to contemplate a little bit and see what we learn from uh, all this uh, exercise besides um, characterizing the capacities and the encoding algorithms. Uh, a, an important uh, thing we, we identified is that uh, in order to achieve capacity in this system, we have to resort to encoders, the operation of which somehow resembles a dynamic system. That is, uh, its uh, encoding phase, the completion of its encoding phase, because what I described, it's an encoding phase essentially, corresponds to appropriate uh, scheduling and uh, service selection of a network of virtual queues because the buffers that we had earlier can be seen as a virtual queuing network, essentially, storing different linear combinations of packets. And uh, also, it's, uh, it seems that uh, this kind of encoders, they are far from uh, being uh, implementable at this stage, so it is interesting to see uh, how we can achieve good capacity if we a priori constrain the kind of uh, encoding that we allow. So something else that uh, we explored is uh, to identify the capacity that is achievable if we allow only XOR encoding of the traffic, but not just uh, pairs of, uh, not XORing of uh, just pairs of packets, but of arbitrary uh, combinations of packets. And uh, we have uh, some uh, results on uh, um, the upper bounds of the capacity, let's say, that is achievable when uh, uh, a limited number of uh, XORing is only allowed. And it's interesting that in that case, the encoders that um, perform close to that uh, bound have the property that uh, they decode the information in a gradual fashion. By gradual fashion, I mean that uh, every time you get uh, a few encoded, a few XOR combinations, you are able to recover some of the packets, as opposed to the schemes that we have seen thus far, where the packets are essentially recoverable after the whole phase of encoding ends. And uh, since uh, uh, in order to achieve capacity, we may need uh, uh, large blocks of uh, traffic uh, as an initial stage of the encoder, we may end up uh, with encoders with fairly significant uh, encoding and decoding delay. So all these are um, important uh, open questions in that context. Um, 
And that uh, summarizes, let's say, what I had to say for the binary erasure channel. Now I'll, I'll change gears a little bit to say a few words for the other problem. I guess I have 15 minutes. Unless if you have a question related to this part. If we have a quick question, do you have a feel for the capacity gain that you're getting, the, the capacity gain over doing something simpler? You know, what's the, is it, sure the capacity is higher, but... Yeah, the, well the capacity gain depends very much on the erasure probabilities. Uh, and actually that's, that's another, th another um, it's an important observation and um, a thought for further work that we're thinking whether to, uh, whether, whether it might be desirable in certain cases to work the channel in a higher erasure probability with high rates, etc. and recover the lost capacity by this type of encoding schemes. So that's, um, I think that's an interesting question. We, at least we don't have an answer at the, uh, at the moment. Or there are some uh, channels where the erasure probability is inherently high, like in certain satellite type of channels. So there you, you may have significant gains. So, uh, in, in the second part of the talk, um, we change a little bit the um, point of view. And actually, we focus more on the higher layers, and specifically on caching for information delivery. And um, at this level, caching has changed um, the, the way we view network architecture uh, significantly. And uh, a large, uh, an important reason for that is the, the change of the nature of the traffic as well. That is, um, first, the peer-to-peer -peer network paradigm and um, the, the content proliferation gives uh, rise to traffic that is uh, uh, somehow um, it's not like uh, either point-to-point -point or point-to-multipoint traffic that is uh, uh, destination-oriented, but is essentially source-oriented. That is, uh, a certain node wants to access a certain piece of information and it may select which source it will uh, take it from. So the routing is uh, from the side of the destination rather than the side of the source. It's initiated, essentially. Furthermore, um, a certain piece of information might be transmitted several times because it has, uh, uh, let's say, a permanent value. It doesn't become obsolete as soon as it reaches the destination, and that is the nature of the content traffic, right? So, um, the if we knew, for instance, for each piece of information which nodes will request it in the future and uh, where it might be in the different, uh, where it might be stored in the different nodes of the network, we could have designed the network much more efficiently. 
So the different content architectures that are proposed essentially try to emulate this type of behavior. So here we see a picture that uh, outlines um, a network based on replication that is uh, of, uh, we call it an offline replication framework in the sense that uh, the replication is decided a priori based on some uh, initial knowledge of uh, traffic popularity at different uh, parts of the network. And uh, somehow the, in the initial placement, we try to match the spatial popularity of uh, the different pieces of information such that we shorten the distance that the piece of information needs to travel from the source to the destination. And this is uh, a framework that um, uh, arises in uh, content distribution networks or in public subscribe systems and in this type of architectures. And then uh, another replication framework, a more dynamic type of replication that uh, emerged recently and is studied extensively. It's motivated by the presence of uh, storage capacity at the individual routers and the possibility that uh, an information item might be stored opportunistically as it travels from uh, its source to the destination. So uh, in such a framework, which another word for it is an in-network uh, caching framework, um, first uh, the destination every time that needs to access a piece of information will need to take some routing decision, not, not necessarily the destination itself, but somehow the network should make a routing decision. And this routing decision essentially accounts to which potential source of the requested information the request should be directed to. And uh, as the information is traveling from the source to the destination, each one of the intermediate nodes will uh, potentially will make uh, a caching decision that is whether will cache this piece of information dropping some uh, other uh, information that uh, currently occupies its cache or whether will just uh, let uh, the information go by. So um, again uh, the work that I will present related to that uh, was done in uh, two projects that uh, we had um, in our lab. The first, uh, NAD, the NADA project that ended in 2011, uh, had as its objective to leverage architectures of the type that I presented earlier, utilizing uh, the storage capacity that is available on the set-top boxes of uh, the different subscribers and essentially developing um, a managed peer-to-peer -peer architecture, as it was called. And the more recent one, uh, the, Pursue, the Pursue project, uh, tries to, uh, to make uh, uh, and implement an architecture of uh, in-network caching that I described earlier, that is uh, 
methods for uh, doing load balancing and uh, uh, and caching at the different network nodes of the information as goes by, as well as methods for doing routing based on the content of uh, the information. Now, um, the results I present are, uh, let's say, some theoretical results of this nature. And uh, they are related to the general design and optimization problem in the context that I mentioned earlier that uh, includes a number of, uh, of decisions, let's say. So uh, one uh, important decide, design decision is to decide the cache capacity allocation to the nodes. That is somehow an um, offline type of decision. Another important decision is to decide the information replication frequency. That is, uh, to decide uh, each information item uh, how often will replicate it, and by often I mean spatially often. And this, of course, will depend on uh, the local popularity of the item. And then another important decision is uh, the cache placement uh, question, that is, uh, in which node each information item should be stored, as well as, uh, and the final decision is uh, the access question, that is, whenever we request a certain information item, from which node we'll try to download it. So, uh, in, uh, an overall optimal um, architecture should somehow uh, consider um, jointly all these different questions because uh, uh, the access mechanism depends on the allocation of the content. Uh, for instance, um, an intuitive access mechanism is to access the item in the shortest uh, hop uh, in, the, in, in the node that contains the item and that is the uh, shortest number of hops for us. Uh, but such an approach might create congestion, for instance. While if we spread the information more evenly, we may influence the distribution of the traffic as well. So um, if we try to to answer this question opti optimally, of course, we end up with uh, a huge and intractable optimization problem. So uh, one way to deal with this is, of course, to look at uh, subcases separately. And another way is to try to see um, uh, to see the scale to study the scaling behavior of such networks, and that is what we do. That is to somehow take uh, a snapshot of uh, a large network and uh, the network being large will uh, uh, allow us to fluidify, let's say, certain quantities and uh, being able to identify some uh, optimal allocations overall in this fluid approximation. And that's what we try to do with the scaling and the results are presented in these two papers I have here. So, um, a few words about scaling, um, I assume you are all uh, familiar with. Uh, first, uh, 
The large network regime has always been a favorite regime in networking because it, it helps us to answer questions that are difficult to be answered otherwise, like in Aloha, for instance. And uh, this approach has been used with uh, much success in uh, the early 2000s, first by Gupta and Kumar, when they started studying scalability properties of uh, wireless ad hoc networks and uh, by that method simplifying some questions in that regime. So the results uh, we'll, I'll present is um, in the context of that um, scaling loss. So essentially we'd like to see how the presence of caching will change uh, will affect or change the scaling property of uh, a large network in terms of the amount of traffic that can uh, sustain. So, and of course, uh, this kind of studies have been done um, under a number of different assumptions after the original paper. So here I have some other important extensions like uh, multicast traffic information support or uh, cooperative transmissions um, in the original scheme. So somehow our work adds uh, the caching dimension in that. And of course, uh, an important uh, question that um, motivated us was to see whether the existence of caching uh, essentially can change the scaling law if all the other is done optimally. And the answer is that in some cases we may have better scaling and that makes it interesting. So uh, the network model that we considered is um, a regular grid as we have it here. And uh, the traffic, uh, the, the type of traffic we consider is that we have uh, M information item we call files and there is uh, a popularity uh, associated with, the, uh, with each one of the information items. It's the likelihood that a specific information item will be requested. So the different nodes uh, generate requests for these um, M information items and the request should be satisfied by some of the node that happens to have the information item at the time. So uh, we assume that each one of the nodes uh, has a storage capability of K out of those M uh, information items. Excuse me. And uh, each node holds uh, a number of those uh, uh, M files which ones will depend on uh, the caching scheme that is, uh, th that is adopted. And it is one of uh, the parameters to decide in this context. So we assume that uh, each node generates um, requests with uh, a, the same rate, so the traffic is uniform. That is both uh, the traffic intensity is the same in uh, the nodes in all nodes, and also the popularity is the same in all nodes. So it's a fairly regular situation. Note that in general, uh, both may differ. That is, uh, the traffic intensity may vary in different nodes, and also the preferences of different users uh, 
might be different, right? In which case there will be several popularity profiles. But we don't consider that uh, at the moment. We just consider the uniform case. Um, so uh, one issue is the replication here, that is to decide uh, which files will be held at each node. And the other issue is the delivery, that is, uh, given a request, uh, which node will be accessed to get the information. Now, uh, we may uh, ask first the general optimization question, that is, try to optimize uh, the traffic load in the system over all possible uh, allocations of uh, information items in the caches and uh, over all possible routing schemes, in which case we end up with uh, an enormous optimization problem. Uh, and uh, the other possibility is, as I said earlier, to try to fluidify the system. And we do that in uh, the following way. Um, first, we change a bit the objective, and instead of trying to minimize the maximum link load, which is an indication of the sustainable traffic, we focus on the average load overall links. And then uh, we consider a priori a short, shortest path type, type of routing for information access and as we'll see later that will suffice that it's not just an arbitrary assumption. And uh, then we, we make another uh, relaxation assumption let's say in our model that is uh, we forget the per node uh, constraint of the traffic size for the moment and uh, we only assume uh, an aggregate uh, constraint on the um, on, on the caching capacity expressed by the, the replication density constraint that is we assume that uh, uh, each information item is replicated with a certain density in uh, one uh, every one replication in uh, every that many nodes. And uh, the caching capacity, uh, the caching capacity constraint appears as uh, a constraint on this uh, fluid version of the replication. So uh, all these uh, assumptions lead us to the following um, corresponding fluid optimization problem that we have here. That is, uh, we have uh, a number of replication densities and the constraint is that uh, the replication, uh, the aggregate replication density should not exceed the cache capacity. And uh, we have uh, an aggregate traffic load that results from uh, the shortest path information access with uh, the average replication gain assumption. That is, uh, uh, for each information item, uh, the traffic load in the network will be inversely proportional to the square root of uh, the replication density. Now, uh, it turns out that uh, this uh, fluid... Oops. I have it here. 
okay, let me jump here to say that uh, uh, these fluidification assumptions provide us uh, a bound on the solution of the original optimization problem that is good enough to identify the scaling. Note that here we are interested on the scaling behavior, that is on the uh, order behavior and not the exact value of the optimum. So it can be shown that these uh, fluidification assumptions bound the optimum in this manner and they are adequate. And uh, another uh, interesting um, point in the whole consideration is the assumption about uh, the nature of the popularities. Uh, I saw that uh, I exceeded the time. Just give me a few minutes um, to present you some results. So this is the final important point of the model, the assumption about the nature of uh, the popularity, um, the popularities of uh, the items. We assume that uh, the, No, sorry, this is um, the nature of the solution. I'll talk about the popularities later. So um, the solution of uh, the fluid problem has this nature, that is the optimal replication densities will be um, either equal to one for highly popular files, and we'll see what uh, we mean by that, or proportional to the popularity raised to the power two over three, or uh, um, equal to one replication, essentially, in the whole network. Of course, the important range of replications is uh, the middle one, that is uh, replications proportional to uh, the power of 2 over 3. And uh, let's see how... Uh, okay, this is the solution to the optimization problem. Here is the result that... Uh, the optimal solution of, on the, of the fluid problem suffices for the scaling law. And uh, here is uh, some indication of how we, given the solution to the fluid problem, we obtain allocations in the actual system that uh, bound uh, the rate of growth. And... Um, Let's jump to see the behavior of um, the scaling. And in doing so, it's important to note what is the nature of the popularities for which we obtain the scaling laws. Here, uh, the, the scaling laws, of course, will depend on the popularities. And uh, we considered um, uh, popularities that um, are essentially that they comply to power laws and more specifically we considered uh, a zip distribution for the popularities uh, that is um, the popularities are proportional to, uh, to are proportional to essentially m to the inverse m to the uh, power t and uh, the exponent t uh, governs the nature of the popularity law. Now, uh, this is something that has been studied a lot by the internet community, and there are uh, 
results based on measurements that show that uh, the internet traffic complies to, to these kind of laws for exponents uh, between 0.5 and 3. And actually the, uh, the value of the exponent depends on the kind of the traffic. That is, in the backbone, the traffic uh, satisfies uh, the power law with uh, low values of t. A proxy type of traffic satisfies the law with intermediate values of t, while uh, traffic in mobile applications satisfies the law with high values of t. Now, the scaling results depend on uh, the value of t as well. Okay, let me just show... Uh, some results. Here is uh, the scaling results for the different values of t and uh, for uh, different assumptions on uh, the relationship of the number of information items and the nodes because the scaling will, depends, will depend on this as well. Uh, so the scaling behavior in this part of the picture it's similar uh, essentially to the Gupta-Kumar type of scaling, which means that uh, caching will not help at least uh, at the scaling regime as far as the capacity is concerned. And uh, for a certain regimes of uh, for, the, for certain regimes of uh, popularities, that is for uh, tau between one and uh, three over two, we can observe uh, better scaling laws than uh, the Kumar, the Gupta Kumar bound. And essentially, we observe scaling that is uh, m to the power two over two over three. Um, now, we can study the sc scaling in various ways. In the previous uh, table, we had scaling when the cache uh, is uh, the cache size is fixed and uh, the network size together with uh, the number of information items was growing. Another possibility is to let uh, all three quantities grow to infinity and study scaling in this regime as well. And uh, here we see okay, different, uh, uh, different scaling laws for the different relationships between mk and 10. I think I'll jump the explanations for the sake of time, but if you are interested on the details, we can talk it afterwards or look at the papers. And um, okay, this, uh, this study left us, of course, with several uh, open questions as well. First, it was satisfying initially because we had some clue of uh, what will be the effect of the caching and some uh, theoretical bounds, let's say, on what is possible. Uh, but it left a lot of open questions, that is, uh, what can be said in, uh, for the performance of the system in a realistic setting as compared to what we, say, uh, we saw here. And in a realistic setting, what would be different is first that uh, 
the popularities will not be known, so somehow these decisions should be based on measurements, and the question is uh, how quickly the, the values of the measured quantities will approach the real ones and whether the algorithm can uh, react to these rates. Uh, then uh, the, the storage of the items in the nodes cannot be coordinated. Note that uh, here we assumed we have a certain replication density. Replication density means that uh, we determine a priori uh, how, how often an information item will be stored. So if the nodes do not coordinate, we cannot avoid situation that every node will store its own item. And uh, actually that's, that's a problem that has been studied from a game theoretic perspective as well. Uh, and people try to find uh, mechanisms that uh, uh, motivate nodes away from each node storing the most popular item and having only one information item stored in the whole network. And so that, that's, a, that's an open question how to do this effectively in such an autonomous operation mode. And uh, of course, uh, there are uh, interesting questions on this, even for the scaling uh, low behavior for other non-flat types of networks. Note that here, the network con uh, we considered is, is very regular and simple, right? So uh, one question is, if we have uh, different, more complicated, still regular uh, topologies, uh, what uh, uh, how many of these results will still hold and then uh, uh, what will be the result if uh, the topologies are arbitrary as they are in practice and I think that concludes um, this part of the talk and my talk as well